Welcome back to the MMA Media Let's Talk with the Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA, and a lot has been going on in combat sports recently. But first, I hope you guys are having an amazing day. I just got up from my chair. Sorry if I sounded like I was far away. Um, I hope you guys are having an amazing day. I've been running my days like they're 27 hours, and creating content has made me sometimes reverse my sleeping schedule. Kind of fix that now, so my deadlines and track of time should be more on point, should I say. But what's been going on in combat sports? Well, UFC 240, just some things to talk about after that. The major thing is Chris Cyborg, right? Her whole thing with the UFC. Now, I haven't been paying too much attention, but my friend that runs the Good Morning MMA channel on YouTube, you know, he kind of keeps me up to date with some things. And it got me a little bit more involved on what's going on here. Chris Cyborg and Dana White feud is still going on. I don't know why this is still going on. I mean, they've been at each other for years. I know Dana White likes to say sometimes that he's not really going after Chris Cyborg. Whether he's doing it on purpose or not, he has some some things. And even recently, he's been saying things like she's scared to fight Amanda Nunes or she doesn't want that fight or whatever it is. When it's clearly expressed from Chris Cyborg, at least publicly, that she wants to fight Amanda Nunes. And why wouldn't she? She's a fighter. You know, she's not scared of anybody. If it's going to be anything, I think it's the negotiations. Maybe Chris Cyborg said that she didn't want a certain thing in the negotiations. And that, in another way, told Dana White, oh, she doesn't want to fight Amanda Nunes. When in reality, it might be she just doesn't like the money that they're going to give her. Or something in that nature. That's what I think it is. But it is definitely not the right thing to do, in my opinion, when the promoter is bashing his own fighter right especially Chris Cyborg who does have a bigger name than your average fighter I mean she draws better than your average fighter I think she's more than a 300,000 pay-per-view draw right so talking bad about her bashing her in any way is not the best thing to do I mean he talks highly for Amanda Nunes but Nunes I believe is not even the same kind of draw that Chris Cyborg is you know what I'm saying so I don't know what's going on there I don't know if he's still holding the thing with Ronda Rousey hating on Chris Cyborg I don't know what it is all about but I did hear Brennan Schaub's take on it about the appearance and the vibe that Chris Cyborg kind of gives just by looking at her without knowing her personality because the way she looks is polar opposite to her personality she's a super nice person apparently I mean she's in Africa helping the kids and stuff but she looks like some villain in a Terminator movie or something like that I actually never seen a Terminator movie before but that's what i think a villain would look like but uh yeah she looks very menacing like very mean but she doesn't talk that way she doesn't act that way she's extremely nice extremely good person and because of that she has a huge following people love her fighting and the personality that she has it's a good mix i guess but you know brandon was saying that they won't do any good by exposing the good side of her because of her appearance pretty much you know she looks like this menacing woman almost like a villain in the sport you know so showing more of her personality could probably backfire on that narrative possibly can be that but i actually think if you expose her personality she possibly will be maybe bigger the look that ronda rousey holly holm and all these other fighters have they're more innocent looking or they're you know a lot more feminine and they can sell that appearance to the fans it makes sense to them because the casual fans don't really look too much into it they just see the appearance they see the fighting and that's it and the polarizing characteristics of cyborg can probably confuse casual fans i don't know man i think that's kind of bad because instead of making her seem like some unknown or mysterious ruthless fighter they bash on her so i don't really get brennishov's uh, take on it because the promoter is actually talking bad about her or saying things that diminish her actual 
appearance to the casual fans. Again, they think she's some confident, ruthless fighter with no fear, but when the promoter is saying that she fears the champion, I don't know what the motive there is. Maybe to create a narrative that Amanda Nunes is that scary and that good that even Chris Cyborg is scared of her, or they're just directly trying to bash Chris Cyborg for some reason. I get it if they didn't talk too much about her, but when they did, it's about that she's just some destructive fighter in there that you cannot miss, almost like what they do with Robbie Lawler. You know, then I would understand it, but they're not really doing that, which I think they should be doing. That'd be an excellent marketing strategy. When she fought Holly Holm, for an example, I know Habib was the co event, and that may have raised the pay-per-view buys, but almost did like 400,000 buys. And she only had like a couple fights in the UFC. She definitely has some sort of following. I understand she was fighting Holly Holm as well, who had a little bit of a following. But I think before that fight, she fought... Uh, did she fight Jermaine Duranamy before Cyborg or after Cyborg? She fought her before Cyborg. Of course, yeah, before Cyborg. And that pay-per-view did not do well at all. They said it was one of the lowest rated pay-per-views of all time or something like that. So I don't think her going to the Chris Cyborg fight really had that much of an impact. I think it was more Cyborg was probably the second biggest draw that night. Possibly the biggest because Habib wasn't really the big name yet. But once Habib did beat Edson Barboza, then talks start going around. I understand after the Michael Johnson when Habib was starting to get a bit of a name into the casual fan sphere because it was on UFC 205 where Conor McGregor fought Eddie Alvarez and he called out Conor in front of millions of people. And then Max Kellerman, who is one of the mainstream casual fans, analysts, I guess you would call him. He was even talking high and mighty for Habib. And I think Max Kellerman, a boxing guy who had to cover that card, he was the only guy putting up Habib's name. And that's what ingrained that name, Habib, Khabib, Nurmagomedov, some long Russian name, undefeated. You know, that guy, Max Kellerman, I believe ingrained that name into casual fans' head and potentially carried on. Whenever that name got brought up, they remembered, oh, this is the guy that might be Conor McGregor. Yeah, I don't think they're doing the right thing with Chris Cyborg. I don't think it's the right strategy to take. Chris Cyborg says she definitely wants to fight Amanda Nunes. That's the fight that has to happen next for both fighters because Nunes just defended her 135-pound belt. And there's nobody else. Like, who's Felicia Spencer going to fight? Who's Chris Cyborg going to fight afterward if she loses? Like, what's going to happen to that division? I believe if Cyborg leaves that division, good night, 145, you know? Who else is going to be there? Megan Anderson, Felicia Spencer is going to fight Amanda Nunes, but then what? I guess it's a good promotional tool for Amanda Nunes because she looks unstoppable out there. I mean, there's probably nobody that's going to be able to beat her besides Shevchenko, right? And that's probably not going to happen for some time until Shevchenko racks up title defenses. But I don't expect Amanda Nunes to fight that much longer. I don't think she's going to be in the UFC that much longer, to be honest. She has pretty much accomplished every single goal. She's broken all the records, almost, besides title defenses at 135, but she's really close to beating that, too. I think once she beats that, defends the 145 a couple times, you know, going back-to-back -back with those, and eventually gets to that end goal of surpassing Ronda Rousey's title defense record, there's nothing left for her. Fight a guy, I don't know what, like, what else do you do, you know? If she goes and beats a legit 135-pound fighter, male, I'm just gonna call her the greatest fighter ever. Pound for pound, not looking at gender or anything, she's the best ever, in my opinion. If she goes out there and beats a guy as well, who would sign that, you know? What guy would sign? That's almost a lose-lose situation, but there was that one guy that fought Jermaine Durand and got knocked out bad, man. I mean, that Belgian actor had to have some stuff going on in his life to take a fight like that. Low-key probably didn't know he would lose right? Most people, casual fans for the most part, 
probably would have thought, oh, he'd probably be her. He's a guy. She's a girl. He must have had some, like, bad breakup or something, man. <laughs> like, she took the couch. She took the best. She took all the money. Something had to have happened. Just kidding. And what else has been going on? Conor McGregor has been going crazy on Twitter. I'm gonna actually read what he said. It's pretty out there. Okay, so he goes, You check on the fighter that was illegally knee to the head on the ground. Not get into a game of trying to prove the knee was legal with the fighter who committed the assault. So I think he's talking about the Habib fight where he actually need Habib from the bottom. And he might be talking about Herb Dean, looking at his next tweet. So he says, Herb should have checked on Habib's eyeball after I needed full whack from the bottom as well. I used the mount defense leg as a springboard right into the eye socket, but I was so crafty with it, I got away Scotty. I called the big papa pump into the eyeball and your brothers. Um, then he continues, and lastly, Herb, my man, he's trying to sniff my jockstrap. Here it's my run, stand it up, pussy fighter, panic, panic. We all saw you panic in the back of the bus, riddled in panic. I might actually be the Riddler instead. Uh, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what drove him to tweet this. It seemed like it came out of the blue. I don't see him responding to anybody. I guess it was on his mind. Maybe he saw someone say something about it, and he wanted to address it. I mean, personally, and honestly, I know this might feel like a negative connotation, but it's factual. Herb Dean was very much on the side of Conor McGregor, allowing him to do a lot of illegal stuff. I mean, there was someone online that actually counted how many illegal things Conor McGregor did in that fight, and I believe it's like a record-breaking thing. I mean, it was a lot, and Herb Dean never took a point away. He gave him, like, 10 warnings or whatever it was. Warnings mean nothing. They mean nothing. They do nothing. A warning is actually telling the fighter, yeah, you got away with a good job. That's pretty much what it was. Like, they might be a little bit worried. Oh, maybe I did this illegal thing. Maybe I'm going to do this and hopefully I get away. And once the ref warns you for it, that kind of confirms, yeah, you're okay, man. You're okay. You did that illegal thing. Don't do it again, man. It was kind of messed up. But it is interesting. Connor's trying to spin it. And it seems like he's trying to get into Habib's head or possibly talk up another fight with Habib. And in his position, why not? I mean, it's the biggest fight he can take. And it's obviously the fight that he wants the most. He wants to avenge a loss. But man, I would love to see Connor fight already. I mean, he's not really doing a whole lot. I know he got injured recently. And maybe that's uh, what's keeping him back a little bit. But I think Dana White did say that Connor will fight by the end of the year. There's a lot of fights for him, man. There's a lot of good fights. I mean, Tony Ferguson said he'll fight him. Jorge Masvidal's calling him out, and the fact that Connor got mad at Dana White for saying that Jorge Masvidal is too big for Connor, that shows a bit of interest, maybe actually thinking about the Jorge Masvidal fight now, maybe want to prove people wrong or something like that. You know, Dana White said what he said. I don't think Jorge Masvidal is too big, to be honest. He's a little bit bigger. I think he cuts from the 180s to 170, and Connor probably weighs like 170. Connor Ray Fonde Diaz, who's around the same size as Jorge Masvidal. So I would love to see that fight. Why not? Masvidal said it's either Usman or it's Connor or no one else. And Dana White came out and said that Colby Covington, if he goes and beats Robbie Lawler, which is a very doable thing, it's going to be a very competitive fight. I can't wait for this weekend. If Colby Covington beats Robbie Lawler, he's 100% next for a title shot. It's warranted. He's on a win streak. He's on a longer win streak. He's going to beat a guy like Robbie Lawler. He's not coming off a loss three fights ago. So yeah, it makes sense, obviously. I would like to see Masvidal versus Usman after the historic win that he just had. But if they can do good for both of them, give Colby... Usman, it's a big fight, it's a heated fight, it's an emotional fight, and it's a very interesting stylistic fight where they're very similar to each other in terms of some wild striking as well as a heavy offensive full pressure wrestling game. They bring a high pace with great cardio. So that's going to be interesting. When we look at Jorge Masvidal, give him Conor McGregor. You know, everybody's happy, you know? And it's a big fight. Jorge Masvidal is one of the biggest names in the 170-pound division, and he's coming off two huge wins, right? You want to strike when the iron's hot. 
And Masvidal, you know, he gets some weird fights when he loses. It's him usually just losing by mere strikes, man. I mean, he gets into such close fights. Most of his losses are split decisions, if I'm not wrong. Let me actually count how many split decisions lost. So Damian Maya, Lorenz Larkin, Benson Henderson, Eli Quinta. And those are four of his last five losses. Luis Palomino. Yeah, those are only split decisions lost, but those are a lot. Um, the only one he convincingly got beaten in his last 10 fights or whatever is uh, Stephen Thompson. Right, that's the only one he got convincingly beaten, but that was three fights ago. That was less than two years ago. Masvidal's extremely defensive, a little bit too much, and that's kind of what hindered a lot of his performances until he came up to 170, and then he just started knocking people out, man. I don't know what's going on. Since coming up back to welterweight, he's only had one decision win. That was against Ross Pearson, and he dropped him too. You know, Jake Ellenberg was a TKO win. A little bit strange fight. Ellenberger caught his toe or his foot into the cage. Donald Cerrone destroyed him. Darren Till put him out. Askren wandering in the shadow realm right now. But yeah, him and Connor should be in an excellent fight. Who do I favor in that fight? Hard to call, man. It's so hard to call. Connor is very precise. He's the best offensive boxer Masvidal's ever faced before. But Masvidal is the best or one of the best defensive boxers Connor has ever faced before. So how is that going to mix up with each other? Masvidal is very hard to hit. The only two guys that were able to hit him clean were uh, Darren Till and Stephen Thompson. And the fact that Darren Till southpaw and resembles Connor a little bit, not as fast but more power, he was able to catch Masvidal very quickly. And what Masvidal said about that knockdown was he didn't even see what happened. He didn't even know what happened. He didn't know how Darren Till got to him that quickly. And if he really couldn't see Darren Till get in that position and land that left hand, that is extremely worrisome for him coming into a fight with Conor McGregor. Conor's way faster, better footwork, a lot slicker, a lot more precise with that left hand, and he has the same reach as Darren Till. Conor could potentially get, on, get in on him completely undetected, like he says, like a ghost. Stephen Thompson did a very similar thing as well when he sidestepped right hand and dropped Mazadal. But a thing is, Hori Mazadal never leans too much, never extends too much, he never gets really out of position. And that's going to make it so much harder for Connor to land something clean or bait him or something like that. Masvidal kind of fights to his own beat. He kind of dances to his own beat. It's usually hard for him to fall into things. It's usually hard for an opponent to draw him out into something or make him fall into a space. And that's what Connor does to most people he fights. And Jorge definitely brings that kind of mentality that Nate Diaz also comes into fights with. I mean, you have to put him out cold to stop him. He has a great chin. He's hard hit as it is. He has way more power than Nate does. And he's one of the best boxers Connor's ever faced before with an actual good wrestling game that can threaten Connor or he could just mix up the levels and use his size potentially. So I expect in the later rounds, let's say the fourth and fifth rounds, Jorge may be one of the most dangerous fighters Connor's ever faced before if he can get into those rounds. But that's what makes this fight so exciting. The back and forth from each other, not just, you know, the promotional stuff and the press conferences, but... In the fight, man, I see a lot of punches getting defended, a lot of commitment from each other. Both fighters just trying to catch that one clean on their opponent, but I see the defense of each other so solid and so elusive. It's going to be fascinating. I can't think of another MMA match where the boxing defense combined with the power that they commit with puts each other in so much danger that it creates such a hazardous battle. I believe it will be the kind of fight that would keep everybody on the edge of their seat the entire time. I mean, I literally mean that. I had the same feeling when Eddie Alvarez fought uh, Justin Gaethje. But this is way more than that, man. This is more dangerous. A lot of slipping, a lot of blocking, a lot of head movement. 
but just one step off and it could be lights out for either of these two. With the precision that both these guys have, with the power that they bring and the speed in their punches, for a welterweight fight, there's going to be some treacherous intent to finish each other from both these guys and I hope it gets made, man. I absolutely hope so. And what am I looking at right here? Ultimate Fighter veteran shot with real bullets at TV audition. So season one veteran of the Ultimate Fighter, Alex, I cannot pronounce that last name, Shoner, Shoner, lost to Forrest Griffin on the show and lost to Mike Swick in the finals. I do not remember that. So he's become a successful stuntman in Hollywood since his MMA career. So he was auditioning for a show by JMP Productions called Seal Team. So I'm guessing it's something uh, with Navy SEALs. When he was shot in the back with real bullets in a truly unbelievable incident. He's now suing pretty much everybody involved in the audition, which is understandable and good for him, man. Getting shot with real bullets? Yeah, I hope he never has to work again in his life. How did this happen? According to the lawsuit, which was reviewed by TMZ, Alex was asked to burst through a door with a stunt woman. Both were armed with automatic weapons that were inexplicably loaded with live ammo. And the stunt woman reportedly fired her gun as called for, leaving him with nerve damage and an injured arm, but thankfully no life-threatening injuries. Oh, thank you. As TMC points out, the truly baffling part of all this is that claims the stunt coordinator wanted the scene done with real bullets. I don't know, man. And people went with it? I don't know how that can happen. If, if I'm a stuntman and or anybody in the movie set and the stunt coordinator said, hey, let's do this with real bullets, I'll say you're out of your mind, man. I'm out of here. I mean, obviously, real bullets, what does that mean? He wants it done with real bullets. Obviously, you're going to have to fire the gun. That's what it means, right? What's the point of real bullets if you're not going to fire the gun? Why would he even say that? Yeah, hopefully he gets paid, never has to work a day in his life. If the stunt coordinator actually did that and everybody went with it, I mean, I'm questioning the IQ of some people and... I mean, I'm questioning a lot of things now, man. And it's on CBS? Or did just the stunt coordinator not tell anybody? He wanted done with real bullets. He put the bullets in there. I mean, if that's if that's the real case, he's going to get hammered, man. I mean, that's messed up. I would think if he told someone about it, someone will say something. I'm not going to put bullets in this gun because obviously we're going to have to shoot it. But thankfully, Alex is okay. Is that the similar thing that happened to Bruce Lee's son? Because I know uh, he got shot and he was an actor. I think he was on the set. I heard that someone switched a prop gun with an actual real one. And when the scene was taking place, he actually got shot at, very similar to this, I guess. Yeah, but let's go to the questions here. Okay, we're gonna start with the YouTube questions and we're gonna start with the most liked comments. So for those who don't know, if you wanna ask questions, you can ask me under the community tab on my YouTube page. I usually type questions for podcasts or something like that, reply your questions, questions with the most likes get read first. Or you can tweet me, my Twitter handle is under every video. And just make sure to hashtag it MMA meeting like you're going to see later in the video. So we're going to start with JT7. What do you make of Jones' submission victory over that waitress? Oh my god. It doesn't sound real. You really got to be careful these days. And it's hard to trust people today, man. It's hard to trust allegations today. You know, too many people lie about it. When one person lies about something so serious... It's hard to take anybody else with the same allegation serious anymore without real investigation until it's all over. Before, it used to be like, if this waitress said this about John Jones like 10, 20 years ago, everybody would believe her. And Jones would be shunned out of society, you know? But after all the recent uh, allegations have been happening with a lot of other celebrities, with a lot of rich people, which just seems to be mostly with rich people and celebrities for some reason. Um, a lot of them turn out to be untrue. It's hard to believe what the waitress says now. And some of that stuff she was saying is really suspicious. So for those who don't know, John Jones was 
facing a battery charge following an alleged incident in a strip club in New Mexico. So he's being accused of slapping a waitress, pulling her onto his lap and kissing her neck, putting her into a chokehold and touching her after being asked to stop. And he also allegedly slapped the genitals of the waitress who had been serving them. When the waitress went to go get drinks at the bar, Jones allegedly pounced on her and put her into a rear naked choke before engaging in roughhousing, which felt like a wrestling match and nothing sexual, the woman told police. And Jones is saying that he's fine, like nothing happened or whatever. And Dana White said he saw the strip club video and he's not worried for Jones at all. If that's the case, if Dana White saw the video and he's saying that he's not worried for Jones because... <laughs> he would be worried for Jones, you know, if he didn't see some evidence. Jones has done a lot of things wrong, you know. He's been in trouble a lot of times, and Dana White's always worried when things happen with Jones. But if he's not worried, I'm not worried, you know, because let's be honest, I'm not going to say 100% she's wrong. I don't know anything. I don't know if it happened. It could have happened. You know, Jones made a lot of mistakes in his life. But in my opinion, just my opinion, I think Jones has a lot of money. He's a celebrity. He went to a strip club with his brother who's also a bit of a celebrity. Maybe there was a little bit rough housing, maybe a little bit, but it could be an opportunity for that girl to, uh, you know. Jones went in for the rear naked choke and she countered him hard, you know, so uh, I don't know what to say about it. Except that she's like the only person to survive Jones' rear naked choke. I mean, she put up a better fight than <laughs> Rampage Jackson, you know, she actually fought off the rear naked choke. Great submission defense, you know, but uh, hopefully nothing serious comes for this. If Dana White didn't say that, I would be a little bit worried for Jones. I mean, because he has crashed into a pregnant woman's car before. And then we go to Minden. Number one, what would you rather have? Woodley's right hand or Connor's left hand? Connor's left hand. Way more precise, way faster. Woodley's just a lot more powerful. And he is actually pretty precise with it and good with timing, but Connor's on a different level. Number two, Woodley versus Habib. Who do you think would win? Um, If Habib can do what Usman did, I think Habib would win if Woodley doesn't have an answer for it. But I think Woodley's a little bit too big. He has great takedown defense. He has power. Habib is a better striker than Usman, but he's not as long. You know, Woodley's going to have a four-inch reach advantage. And Usman has an enormous reach. I'll lean Woodley for now. I'll lean Woodley. Number three, lastly, who do you see in the top 10 welterweight having the best chance of beating Kamaru Usman, Santiago Ponzinibbio? Check out my uh, nightmare matchup video. Santiago Ponzinibbio is an absolute nightmare for Kamaru Usman. I cannot wait when that guy's going to fight. When is he going to fight? Jackson McKee. Number one, who's your favorite fighter at the moment and why? Number one favorite fight. I like so many fighters. Man, I think Horde Masvidal won me over. I think he won me over, man. I've always liked him, but after what he did with the Ben Askren thing and his post-fight celebration, you can call it tasteless in a way, but man, I'm front row on his hype train now. I mean, that was hilarious. I was howling when he fell on the ground. It was just so funny. The guy is hilarious. I don't know where this sense of humor was before. Finishing fighters the way he is is actually very exciting. Um, His personality is very exciting as well. He's extremely technical. He's so well-rounded. He is a good wrestler. He has great takedown defense. He can go offensively if he wants. He took down Darren Till. People forgot about that, which is an extremely hard thing to do that Tyron Woodley couldn't even do. He has his knockout power now. Welterweight? Hori Masvidal is another beast. Lightweight maybe someone different, but right now it might be Masvidal. If I'm going to talk just stylistically and just watching fights and that's it, without the talking, without the promotions or anything like that, who can I not miss fight at all? It might be Yuval Romero or or even Korean Zombie at the moment. And number two, who wins, Masvidal or Edwards? 
and how. That's a good fight. People think Masvidal's just gonna take him over. I don't think so, man. I think it's a competitive fight. I don't think Masvidal should underrate him. I understand that's a fight that Dana White even wants now. Dana White has said that that's a great fight to make next. Winner gets title shot after Colby if he beats Robbie Lawler. But here's the thing. If Lawler beats Colby, which is another very possible thing, you have to go to Masvidal versus Usman. So I would say wait for Masvidal. Wait until this Colby and uh, Robbie Lawler fight plays out then see what happens if Colby wins okay give Colby the title shot Masvidal versus Edwards will do great or you know something like that so Masvidal versus Edwards I think Edwards length can give Masvidal some problems I think his footwork can give him some problems they both have good cardio I don't think they're gonna gas out I would say Edwards actually has a better gas tank than Masvidal does uh Masvidal is a better wrestler he's a better grappler so he can go that route, switch it up on him. Masvidal also, I think, has more power. The speed can go either way. They're both very relative in speed. But timing and precision. Now, there's the thing. Masvidal has really good timing, so I think he can meet and match Edwards there. But precision? I say probably Edwards. He's extremely precise. His southpaw stance and that left cross is like a sniper. So how do I see the fight playing out exactly? Taking out the mentality part of it. I'm not going to say Masvidal is going to underestimate Edwards at all. So I'm going to say the best Masvidal mentally and physically versus the best Edwards mentally and physically. I actually do think Edwards wins. I think he can outpoint Masvidal. I think Masvidal can stay a little bit too defensive on longer fighters who don't engage too much, right? And Edwards is a very good counter puncher. So Masvidal doesn't want to be too aggressive. And it's not just one left hand. I mean... Edwards can throw a lot of things, left kicks, right hooks, left straights, jabs, everything in between. So Masvidal is going to be a little bit more defensive than he usually is in this division. And I think that's just automatically going to play into Edwards' game, winning a decision. I don't think Edwards will drop Masvidal at all. I actually don't think he's going to hit him too clean many times. I see a couple good left hands getting in there, but I see Masvidal kind of laughing it off. But the only time I can see anyone getting dropped is Masvidal actually catching Edwards. Maybe late in the fight. But I ultimately think that Edwards is going to edge out most of the rounds, like three of the rounds. And Maslow is probably going to hate the decision and think he wins, you know. And then number three, how does a third fight between DC and Jones go? Jones dominates him, man. He has his number. It's plain and simple. The fact he was able to catch DC in the second fight like that, and he can't do so to guys like Tiago Santos and Anthony Smith, maybe because John Jones is a lot better in rematches and game plans for them a lot better. Uh, maybe that's the reason why he was able to catch DC so intelligently. But what does that say about a third fight? You know, if that's the case, John Joe's probably going to come out there like some all-knowing being and just figure out everything DC's going to be doing and then catch him again. Um, it depends on heavyweight or light heavyweight. At light heavyweight, Jones is going to win easily. I think DC's going to have a hard time getting down to that weight class. He might be drawn out and weaker chin. At heavyweight, I see DC doing a lot better, but Jones potentially will be more powerful. I don't expect him to lose cardio or anything like that, lose his pacing. Um, I think DC's a little bit slower at heavyweight than he was at light heavyweight, so that's going to play into Jones' advantage as well. And DC still does the same thing that gets him caught. I mean, he still leans to his right a lot. He's probably going to fix it for this kind of fight. But I think Jones is going to figure out another opening through that. He's a little bit more intelligent, a little bit better of an overall fighter, mixes things a lot better than DC does, and he will have knockout power at heavyweight. So I think Jones still beats him. Then we go to the Phantom's Thread. What would you do if Valentina said you can clap them cheeks, but you have to get spanked by Daddy and Ghana before? Here come the incel questions. No, I'm just kidding. I can't get spanked, man. I can't get spanked. So it's very tempting. I can't. It's too humiliating. It's way too much. I mean, I usually roll down the road one way, but I can't lie. I've looked through the rearview mirror before. 
Uh, I can get jealous of the people going down the other side of the road, you know, going down the other way. I would like to get home sometime, but I wasn't born that way, so I have to keep heading out. Uh, now I think about it, I have accidentally, accidentally hit that early left signal once. Confused my friends, maybe that I was going to go and do a UE and take best of both lanes. But it was just an accident. Like I said, it was just an accident. Whatever, man. I'll say I wouldn't, but in that situation, you're lying if you said you wouldn't have a 10 second inner dialogue. I mean, it'd be super tempting, but I gotta stay true to myself. I can't. I ain't spanked by Ngannou. You probably can't after, even if you wanted to. You just have to lay down and let her... Okay, never mind. Uh, then we go to Crypto. Amanda Nunes versus Henry Cejudo prediction. I can't believe people were talking about this. I think Cejudo's just joking, and some people are taking this a little bit too seriously. This is not a good fight for Nunes. Cejudo, all day. I don't have to say why, really. If I do, then I don't know what to say about that. Then we go to Mike Cianci. If you could supersize one fighter to 205 to beat Jones, who would it be and why? The obvious answer would be Demetrius Johnson. He's more technical, can intelligently compete, more skills, more techniques, great wrestler, good striker, good jiu-jitsu, can go on the ground with Jones. If he could take down Jones, it would be really interesting to see how someone could deal with Jones when he's on the bottom, you know what I'm saying? So DJ would probably be the obvious answer. Then we go to Amari Asafu. Which fighters are you most concerned for in terms of CTE? Are there any fighters showing symptoms now? Best chin in each division. I hate thinking about this. You know, I don't like thinking about fighters potentially having CTE and stuff. Just to answer the question, I mean, Diego Sanchez, I'm worried for him. Uh, BJ Penn is a huge one. He shouldn't be fighting. Those are the two main ones. They've been fighting for a long time, especially Diego, and they've taken so much damage, been through so many wars. I'm also a little bit worried for Darren Elkins. You know, he's a younger guy than those two. Um, he's a little bit more in the mix than they are, but, I mean, they call him the damage for a reason, but the damage he's been taking recently is just a little bit too much. And the fact that BJ Penn is actually going to be fighting soon is heartbreaking, man. I mean, Dana White came out and said that he's going to give him one last chance. He had a long talk, I guess, with BJ Penn, and Penn convinced him that last fight, he needs one more. But that doesn't sound good, you know? It's almost like, first, BJ Penn shouldn't be fighting. Brain trauma, CT, stuff like that. It's a danger to BJ Penn. He's getting hit a lot, and he's now going to be fighting Nick Lentz, and Nick Lentz is going to destroy him, man. Nick Lentz is not going to take it easy. And he has a grudge against BJ Penn. You'd know Nick Lentz is going to be training very hard. You usually would think maybe some fighters will take it a little bit easy on BJ Penn. Um, not trying to hit him when he's down or knock him down and finish it viciously. Nick Lentz is going to try to do so. So doing this one last fight, it's just going to cause more harm to BJ Penn. It's almost like the analogy of, uh, let's say, a drug addict, right? Let's say it's your friend or something like that, uh, hypothetically. You know, they're asking you for money and saying, this is the last time, I just need one last time. This is the kind of same thing, but then they want it again later. I have a feeling BJ Penn is going to want another fight after this one. Possibly if he does do pretty well, he doesn't get blown out of the water. He's probably going to be like, you know what, I still got a little bit more in me. And he's going to try to convince Dana again. That's why I see from this. Because BJ Penn's antics outside the cage, getting in fights with bouncers and stuff, it's not a good look. And giving him more fights is only going to harm him more and make his life potentially worse later on. And I personally do not want to see Penn get hurt anymore. I mean, that Yair Rodriguez fight still to this day it was one of the biggest mistakes, I think, ever for matchmaking. Some people thought, okay, BJ Penn may come back. You know, he's talking a lot. He's trained with all different kind of people, so maybe he could show something differently. But when that fight got made, I almost didn't even watch it. 
I knew it was going to happen. It was going to be really bad. This is going to be another one. I mean, Nick Lentz is coming off a loss to Charles Oliveira, but before that, he beat Scott Holtzman, and he TKO'd Gray Maynard. He TKO'd Gray Maynard, who also, you know, probably shouldn't be fighting these days. He's like on the same boat as BJ Penn, and Gray Maynard actually has a wrestling game that he can mix it up so he won't get hit as much. BJ Penn likes to box, and he doesn't really have takedowns. He's not going to take down Nick Lentz. Nick Lenz is a better striker today and a lot more dangerous, you know. So, I don't know, man. Personally, just for me, part of me just doesn't want to watch this. And best chin of each division. Um, heavyweight, it's Francis Ngannou. He has the best chin I've ever seen in MMA. Light heavyweight, it might be John Jones. That guy doesn't get hurt. Tiago Santos blasts him a couple times. I mean, people blast this guy and he just eats it. Middleweight, probably Yoel Romero. Robert Whitaker and Luke Rockle both said when they hit him, it felt like he was made out of steel. And then him on the jaw. I mean, Robert Whitaker head kicked you all Romero flush flush dude even if Whitaker's not the biggest one-shot knockout artist he's still a over 200 pound man head kicking another man and that guy just eats and walks forward so Romero's a tank I would say him at welterweight there's a lot of fighters with good chins there Robbie Lawler has an amazing chin Damian Maia actually has a decent chin as well maybe someone like Frank Camacho or Robbie Lawler I can't think of other fighters for some reason so many fighters in this division off the top of my head I'd probably say Robbie Lawler even though he did get knocked out by Tyron Woodley who wouldn't Tyron Woodley hits you you're pretty much going down I don't know anybody besides Kelvin Gastelum. I mean, that's another one. Kelvin at 185 has an insane chin. Kamaru Usman has a great chin as well. There's so many guys with good chins. It's hard to really pick. And there's fighters who don't really get touched too much, like Lee Edwards. At lightweight, best chin might be Donald Cerrone. The guy can really take a shot to the head and not drop, especially at this division. Khabib, it's hard to say. Khabib never really gets hit. Dustin Poirier has been knocked out senseless before in this division. Uh, Tony Ferguson, I would say, has a better ability to recover than he does having a good chin. He does have a good chin, but I think his recovering ability is top-notch. Connor has a good chin. Donald Cerrone may have the best chin. Justin Gage has a good chin, but he gets hit too often. It's probably diminished now. Eli Quinta, he's another one. Eli Quinta has an amazing chin. You know, there's a lot of good... I mean, Anthony Pettis. Anthony Pettis has a great chin too, man. So it's either Cerrone or Pettis, in my opinion. Featherweight, it's Holloway. Easy. The guy just doesn't get hurt. He even went up a weight class and never got dropped or anything. Bantamweight, I would have said John Lineker. That would have been an easy pick, but John Dotson has a great chin. Cody Garbrandt, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Cejudo has a great chin too. So either Dodson or Cejudo. And then at flyweight, it's really hard to say because not too many guys have knockout power. Probably Cejudo, I guess. Then we go to Martin V. Hello, Weasel. Number one, Justin Gaethje versus Donald Cerrone. How do you see this fight? So it's a great fight. I actually think it's a bad fight for Cerrone. Now here's why. Cerrone doesn't do too well in the first round usually. Now he's a lot better than usual, but he's fighting one of the most dangerous hurricane kind of fighters that comes out to destroy people in the first round you know so it's gonna be a tough fight for Cerrone that first round really tough and just like she has knockout power he has great leg kicks so he's not gonna be afraid to go that route and the pressure he's gonna put on Cerrone may be a little bit uncomfortable Gaethje's actually got a lot better of not being too reckless you know now he's actually putting up a defense he's actually not getting hit clean like he was he just knocked out Edson Barbosa the way he did put a lot of pressure on him he's not gonna allow Cerrone to kick too much Cerrone's going to have a one-step-off kick, and that's it. So what I mean is, they're going to be in a neutral stance, and Justin is going to back him up by throwing something or fainting in. Something Justin Gaethje does a lot is, he actually goes forward, makes it look like he's going to throw a punch, and he ducks and picks his hands up, usually anticipating a punch or something like that. And that's the only time Cerrone's going to have an ability to kick before Justin Gaethje puts 
complete pressure on, right? Because Donald is actually really good at taking one step back and kicking. But that's it. That's all he has. If that doesn't work and he gets backed up after that, he's in a very bad position. He's going to be right on the cage. He has to box now. He has to throw knees or elbows or something. And that's not going to be a smart game to fight Justin Gaethje. A knee can work, but kneeing backwards is a hard thing to do. And that's not Cerrone's style usually. When he gets pressure, he likes to jab away. And he likes to go under for a clinch. He's not going to take down Justin Gaethje. That's not going to happen. The inside fighting is going to be complete Gaethje. He has the knockoff power to put Cerrone out. He has leg kicks as well from the outside. Who's a better leg kicker? I would say Cerrone's a better, more technical leg kicker. But Gaethje seems to have a little bit more power in them. Cerrone snaps him into your leg. You know, he just like whips his legs at you. Justin Gaethje throws his legs like they're totem poles. You know what I'm saying? So I actually see Justin Gaethje potentially TKOing down Cerrone in the second round. But... If Cerrone can survive and stay defensive and not get caught too clean for the first two rounds, he's going to gas out Justin Gaethje and TKO him, I believe. Gaethje in the fourth round is not going to do well against Donald Cerrone. Cerrone's going to eventually find head kicks and knees. But ultimately, I do not see Donald Cerrone having the head movement to not get into any danger for those first two rounds. And that combined with Justin Gaethje's one-shot knockout power with everything he throws. Gaethje comes out with minimal measuring, mostly power shots. The combination of those two can be pretty perilous. To the point where I think Justin Gaethje would eventually catch him. Like I said before, man, Justin Gaethje is like a race car. You know, if you compare him to someone like uh, Tony Ferguson who can last, you know, MPGs pretty high and decent horsepower, stuff like that. Justin Gaethje is made to drag race. I mean, he's made to finish the contest quickly with the biggest wow factor possible. And I just see the target for Gaethje being a little bit too stationary in this fight. And if Gaethje wins, do you see him like a title contender? Yeah, he is a title contender. He's not getting that title shot before Tony Ferguson. That's all I know. So a couple more wins, he'll get there. But yeah, I do think he's a threat to the title. And what chance does he have against Khabib? I actually think he does have a pretty good chance of finishing Khabib in the early rounds. But if he doesn't have that, if he can't hurt Khabib or catch him clean or he can't stop the takedowns because he does have probably the best takedown defense at the higher ranks right now. If he can't stop Khabib for those first two rounds and hurt him and put him away... Khabib is going to maul him. He's eventually going to take him down in the third round and just put a beating on him. But I do think he has a second best chance of being Khabib. He was not the nightmare matchup list for Khabib, but I think he's the guy. Yeah, I thought about it a little bit more. You know, just in case you can be, I also think guys like Donald Cerrone can be a very hard fight for Khabib. Eli Quinta, as we all know, can actually compete with Khabib somewhat. It's just just in case he doesn't have the right pacing and he doesn't have the reach. He doesn't have the precision. Khabib has such good striking defense. He has an ability to just not get hit, put his arms in the way, evade punches, even from guys like Conor McGregor. Longer guys, faster, with better precision and better boxers. He's able to evade those guys. Michael Johnson as well, you know what I'm saying? People do not understand how good Khabib is at defending punches. And number two, Charlie Zielinoff versus Conor McGregor in boxing. That's hilarious. What happened to that guy, man? I remember him a long time ago. I remember when he fought Floyd Mayweather Sr. And I didn't even know who this guy was. I just thought it was just some scrub fighting Floyd. You know, sucker punching him, everything like that. But that seems to be his uh, signature move, you know? Nowadays, people who know Charlie's heel off, if you see him, he wants to box you, just know this is sucker punch coming at one point. But he did beat Deontay Wilder, so he's uh, the unofficial heavyweight champion. Then we go to Seth Rev. How do you think the rest of Ben Askren's career will play out? I actually think now, like I thought originally. Now, after the Robbie Lawler thing, I kind of gave in to some people's perspective of Ben Askren. Because some people were saying I was a little bit too harsh on him. The fact that I didn't think he was going to beat Robbie Lawler. I thought Robbie Lawler was going to dominate that fight, I'm going to be honest. 
like how the fight was kind of playing out maybe not the defending the takedown with a suplex or whatever it was and pounding him out but i thought robbie lawler would shut him down but lawler seemed to be a little bit too respectful of ben Askren's wrestling like i originally thought now i think ben Askren's gonna have a very hard time again with most of the fighters in this division damian maya is potentially who's gonna be fighting next and i still see maya i still see maya winning i see a k1 damian maya chopping legs like aldo and dropping left hands like mcgregor I mean, we're going to see a striking display from Damian Maya that we have never seen before. And actually, I'm super excited to witness it. Because, okay, some people think Ben Askren is going to win. He can win if he can shut down the BJJ of Damian Maya and drag into later rounds. I don't know if that's going to be a main event. I don't know if it's going to be five rounds or three rounds. I think it's going to be three rounds. If it is, it's going to favor Damian Maya because he doesn't have the same kind of cardio that Askren has. But here's the thing. Damian Maya is bigger, very strong, to the point where Hori Masdal said that Damian Maya is the strongest guy he's ever felt in his career. And Maslow's fought everybody. To say that about Maya, that's a huge thing. Another thing is, Maya is infinitely times a better striker. I mean, might as well be Floyd Mayweather. You know, might as well be Krokop out there. You know what I'm saying? He's going to be Marvin Hagler in that southpaw stance and looking for that lunging left hand every time. Damian Maya definitely has better striking than Askren. Askren striking, how do I put it politely? It needs work, you know. It needs a lot of work. And the only route he has is take it to the ground and try to dominate on top. But he's fighting Damian Maya. What does everybody tell you? Do not take down Damian Maya. And that's the only thing Askren can do, really, in my opinion. If he takes down the bigger Maya, I see Maya eventually sweeping him and submitting him. I see him eventually getting the back and subbing him with a quickness, to be honest. After that, to be honest, I don't see any good fights for Askren. So if I'm going to look at the rankings, Kamar Usman, terrible fight for him. Tyron Woodley's a terrible fight for him. Colby is a doable fight, but I think Colby dominates. Hori Masdal, I guess it's a bad fight. I still think Askren can do better in a rematch if he doesn't get caught the way he did. But I'm pretty confident in Masdal now. Leon Edwards might destroy him, but Edwards can have a hard time with takedowns. He can keep that distance all day. That's the only thing. His distance management is insane. Askren is never going to get in the necessary distance. RDA, now that's interesting. I can see Askren winning that fight because RDA has a really hard time with bigger guys with better wrestling than he is with great pressure and Darren Till I think Till drops the left hand on him all day Darren Till has insane takedown defense I don't think Askren can really get him to the ground that easily Steven Thompson Thompson keeps that distance all day doesn't risk anything too much besides when he sees that final opening Thompson is a wizard out there he's a super experienced kickboxer Anthony Pettis I know they'll never fight but I can see Ben Askren winning that one Santiago Ponzinibbio he'll help Ben Askren meet the clockwork elves Robbie Lawler I would pick Lawler in a rematch I would think he would knock him out. I think he would be a little more confident in being offensive on Askren. Damian Maya, I got Maya. Neil Magny might actually lose. I understand everybody, not just me, but whenever anybody talks about Neil Magny, it's about him losing. I don't know why that is. He does have incredible cardio and incredible pace he can go at. He has incredible reach, but he's not too fast. He's not too powerful. He doesn't have the wrestling defense to stop Askren. And on the ground, he'll get mauled, right? So I'm being honest. I think Ben Askren would dominate Neil Magny. Alizio Dos Santos can go either way. And Vicente Luque, I see Luque knocking out Ben Askren. Then we go to the Stats Life Productions. Oh my gosh. Another insult question. Uh, I'm just kidding. Best hits in each division. Felicia Spencer, Kansangano, Rachel Ostevich, Mackenzie Dern. Easy. Then we go to Justin Sweeney. It may seem ridiculous, but considering how well Valentina did against Nunes and how well Nunes did against Cyborg, how does Valentina do against Cyborg? I actually think it's a competitive fight. 
Cyborg is nowhere near the kind of striker Valentina is, and Valentina has shown her skill alone, her speed and skill and reflexes are good enough to beat fighters much bigger than she is. And even in the grappling, she has such a strong base, such a strong clinch game. Cyborg's gonna have a hard time there as well. On the ground, I think Valentina is a better grappler too. She's gonna give up like 30, 40 pounds, but I don't see Cyborg landing anything too clean, to be honest. Um, she can probably overwhelm Valentina with a lot of punches, a lot of barrages. And Valentina's only thing to do is probably clinch up under that firepower. And she's going to find a stronger fighter there, so that could be a problem. And the fact that Cyborg doesn't get tired, no matter what Jorogan says, Cyborg does not get tired. We've seen her go five rounds at a high pace before and do very well for those five rounds, even a three-round fight. I think Cyborg would win because of those attributes. I think it's a little bit too much weight, a little bit too much power, a little bit too strong in the clinch which will be Valentina's exit plan. But I'm going to be honest here. I can absolutely see the scenario where Valentina outstrikes Cyborg for five rounds. If Valentina can go up and beat Cyborg, I mean, come on, dude. She can. I would give Cyborg like a 60% chance of winning that fight. It's not going to be by much, you know what I'm saying? Cyborg would be like a two-to-one favorite or something. Then we go to Bilbo Swaggin 76 Who is the most disappointing fighter on the UFC roster and who's the biggest surprise? surprisingly successful which fighters deserve a title shot at 135 over faber a lot of fighters um all right the most disappointing fighter in my opinion is probably darren till as you guys know we've talked about it plenty of times i've talked a lot about darren till i was really high on the guy as most were i mean most people thought that he would give time really a hard time most people thought that he would be a future champion most people thought that he wouldn't get knocked by Masvidal, you know? A lot of people thought he would have a very, very bright future, and he still might have. You know, he's still very young, but he hasn't made any progression. It's weird. He's so young, but he's not really, like, getting better. At least to what we see. He's kind of doing the same thing in every single fight. And that is a rare thing for such a young fighter and someone who is so confident in themselves. And that actually might be a bad thing. He's probably a little bit too confident in himself to the point where he doesn't think he needs to do something better. You know, he's just as good as he is. You know, that's all he needs. Plateauing in his training, possibly. But he's definitely the most disappointing fighter, in my opinion. I mean, when he lost to Tyron Woodley the way he did, I was a little bit down on him. But I was thinking maybe he's going to have a bright future and uh, fix things and eventually fight for the belt again. And then he goes and fights Masvidal. Yes, he dropped him, but he didn't do anything kind of new. He was kind of doing the same thing over and over and over again that got him caught by Tyron Woodley. And he eventually got knocked out again. So I'm like, yeah, man, he needs time off. He needs to fix things. He needs to think things over. And the fact that he got in trouble afterward, it just shows mentally, I don't think he's in the right state of mind. He can look that way, you know, putting training videos and stuff like that. But a young fighter who's going to come off two devastating and humiliating losses like that, I don't expect them to go out and start causing trouble and be full of themselves again. You know, it's, there needs to be a little bit of humility, uh, a little bit of coming to earth and actually looking at yourself realistically. I understand fighters, athletes, you know, competitors are going to have this ego. They're going to have to be a little bit delusional about themselves. They have to be. But there's a limit. There's a, a capacity where it starts to get toxic, toxic to your career, toxic to your skills, toxic to your progression, toxic to your actual life. Hopefully, Darren Till comes back. Hopefully, he comes back a lot better. And he's getting bigger, too. He's going to be a 185. If he goes to 185, I don't see him doing too well, to be honest. And who is the biggest surprise? I did not think Vink Pickle was going to win against uh, Roosevelt Roberts. I would say Jack Hermanson surprised me a bit. I did not think he would rise the way he did and defeat Jacques Ray the way he did. And I believe he's fighting Jared Cannonier, which should be an interesting fight. And I believe he should win that fight relatively comfortably. The biggest one, I would probably say, is either Tiago Santos or Anthony Smith. The way they kind of bulldoze their way through that light heavyweight division. Then we go to Jonathan Daly. 
Predictions for Korean Zombie versus Ortega. That's going to be a wild fight. I will go with Korean Zombie. I think he has a little bit too much power. Uh, he's a better striker. He has better timing. Ortega's defense is lacking. It's not going to go to the ground. I just think overall, KZ is a little bit too calculated. And his reflexes are a little bit too sharp. Volkanovski versus Zabit. I'm going to go with Zabit. I think he's a little bit too long. I think he's way too long. Way better of a striker. In a three-round fight, Zabit should win that fight. In a five-round, Volkanovski could probably edge him, maybe, possibly. But I think Zabit has a better wrestling game, better grappling game. He's faster with the strikes. Volkanovski likes to faint a lot. He likes to duck his head like he's going to do one thing or another. But he has to get past that reach, man. He has to get past the post. And he cannot get head kicked when he's trying to make his way in. And that's going to be a dangerous, dangerous thing. So I think Zabit pretty much trumps him in almost every area besides cardio and power. But Zabit's defense is so solid. That's one of the best fights in the division, though, in my opinion. I think it's going to be extremely competitive because I think Zabit's going to win those early rounds. And Volkanovski is going to come off strong in the late rounds and make a classic fight, in my opinion. Cruz versus Zahudo at 135. I'm going to go with Cruz, if it's a prime Cruz, that is. You know, if we're seeing the best Cruz, I think his footwork, his lateral movement could give that linear style pseudo problems. Pseudo won't have the option of walking down Cruz. He's going to play right into the traps. Cruz has insane takedown defense and the way Cejudo wrestles. He just kind of explodes, right? Or he tries to find it through his striking, but he has to cut off Cruz, you know, and his linear movement is not going to allow him to do so. And Cruz being a lot longer, he could pop jabs all day, switch stances like crazy, which also throws off the takedowns and the timing of Cejudo. So Cruz may be the hardest matchup for Cejudo in that division. Romero versus Costa. I got Romero. I think the wrestling is just too strong. Striking-wise, it should be competitive. I think Romero does a lot more. He has a lot more variety of strikes. I can't wait for this fight, man. You know, even though I think Romero should dominate, Costa's the kind of guy that can catch anybody and put them out. And he has this crazy pressure that's actually going to make Romero fight back. Right? Romero likes to counter now. He likes to really be patient with things. Costa's going to make him work. And if you make Romero work with the power that Costa has, you're going to see two Titans trading blows with each other. And one of them's going to fall. Or Romero takes him down and pounds him out, which I think should happen. Nate Diaz versus Anthony Pettis. I think Pettis, man, his light kicks are way too strong. He can potentially go try to take down Diaz and work on the ground, which would actually make it kind of exciting. They're both really good BJJ artists. Diaz is a longer and better boxer, but Pettis has a great chin. He has decent cardio, but the leg kicks are really going to destroy Diaz, man. So I'll pick Pettis, but I think it's a little bit competitive. Thanks, Weasel. Keep up the amazing work. Thank you so much, man. Now let's get to the Twitter questions. So we're going to start with at Zane Spang. I know I pronounced that wrong. A recent rebuttal to a comment of mine saying Connor was a couple shots from beating Khabib. The fight was closer than people think. They also said Dylan Dennis would beat Khabib. Am I missing something? I just don't see any of that being reality. It's not reality. I guess we're talking about maybe the EA UFC game and they created Dylan Dennis with ultimate stats or something. Connor was not a couple shots from beating Habib besides maybe if Habib let him hit him or Connor, you know, having the power and the precision that he has, he can knock out anybody pretty much with one clean blow. That's the only way. That's the only thing that, that makes sense. The fight was not close. Closer than people think. If people think that Habib dominated every single round, every single round i'm being very specific because the third round was very competitive maybe then it was closer than people think depends who those people are dylan Dennis would be habib that's just trolling <laughs> just trolling dude then we go to at e gaspers number one what would gaichi need to change to become lightweight champion actually wrestle you know offensively don't just stop takedowns but switch up the game a bit you know 
and work on cardio, obviously. I mean, if he's starting to get outstruck and he has nothing to do now, he's stuck. And his cardio is not going to allow him to strike back with power eventually. And number two, I have a theory on the way the human body works in MMA. This is from me thinking about how the body develops in MMA while stoned. Oh, okay. I think that an MMA fighter's body goes through stages. Like how Andre Lofsky used to get KO'd from just a couple shots from his opponent. And now he takes bombs from them and doesn't get knocked out cold. And the same with Justin Gaethje with how he could take an ungodly amount of punishment. But still take huge bombs from his opponents who have lots of power like Dustin, Eddie, Michael, Johnson. Granted, he still gets finished, but he absorbs so much damage that he should get knocked out cold in his fights like Diego or Liddell do. Uh, I don't think they're going through stages, you know? I don't think the brain each shot's better the more you take them. Olofsky taking the bombs from Ben Rothwell is a little bit interesting, but he still gets knocked out. Maybe he isn't getting knocked out by guys like he used to fight. I mean, there's a different level of competition now that he's fighting. It's not the same as fighting guys like Francis Aganu or Alistair Overeem, you know? Um, as for Justin Gaethje, his chin is not really changing. Just since the last couple fights, he isn't getting hit that much. And Diego and Chuck Liddell, their chins never recovered. Um, Diego's not really getting hit by anybody dangerous, and Chuck Liddell still doesn't have a chin. Interesting, though, but lay off the weed, man. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, really quick by at Bisping Team. Big pod fan. What would Habib do in terms of his legacy to be considered the GOAT? Uh, beat Dustin Poirier, beat Tony Ferguson, beat GSP. He's the GOAT. He could just beat Dustin and Tony. You can argue him as the GOAT. But if he goes and beats GSP as well, there is no argument. And then what are the chances of Cejudo actually defeating Holloway if they fought? Ratio-wise, I would say 30% chance. I would give him a little bit better of a chance than Frankie had. Because he does have power. He is a better wrestler. He has a very unique striking style that isn't so repetitive. He actually has some danger to him that Holloway would have to respect. And Cejudo's a different kind of wrestler that Holloway's ever fought up against before. And Cejudo, I believe, can get bigger than Frankie. So, yeah. Cejudo, better chance than Frankie, but I still heavily favor Holloway. And then how does Michael Bisping do against the current UFC middleweight division if he were to return very badly? Yeah, that should not happen. To be honest, the division's a lot different than when he was champion. A lot different. Think about the names. Whitaker is a champ. Romero's up there. Israel Adesanya. Kelvin Gaslam, who knocked out Bisping. Hermanson's up there. Jacare. It's an interesting division for him. And when I mean interesting, interested while staying on the outside of the cage. We'll go to at Kiwi1044. Hi, Weasel. I am happy to tell you that I'll be attending my first UFC event this October in Boston. Oh, congrats, man. It's actually going to be pretty fun. Was curious if you had any advice for getting the most out of the experience. Best seats, where to buy tickets, should I buy the headset to hear the announcers. Looking forward to it, and I'll tweet some stuff to you from the event if I see anything crazy. Um, I don't know any advice. I mean, just kind of soak it in. It's going to be different. It's going to be a lot different. Maybe you won't see the same kind of stuff that you can see on TV. You know, obviously the screen's going to be above you. Here's the biggest thing. I got caught looking at the screen so many times that I actually missed it in person. I kid you not. So I went to UFC 218. I went to the Holloway and Aldo 2 card in Detroit. I kid you not. When Nganu knocked out Alistair Overeem, I missed the knockout. <laughs> I missed the actual knockout. So I'm watching it live. I'm looking at the cage. And as soon as I see Overeem kind of moving around and ducking and stuff... I looked up at the screen to kind of see what was actually going on because the guard was a little bit in the way. I was at a level where I could see mostly over the cage, but the guard and some of the cameramen were still in the way. So when I went to go look up at the screen, which was almost directly above me, when my eyes set on the screen, Alice Overeem was already on the ground. I missed the punch. I had to see the replay. Talking about whenever they say don't blink. Literally don't blink. 
my cousin who I went with, you know, he talks about it sometimes, and I'm like, man, I cannot believe I missed it live. I saw Alistair Overeem trying to evade something, and I saw Nganu, it looked like he was about to plant, and I stood up while my eyes were going to the screen, because I knew something was just about to happen. I look at the screen, and Overeem's already falling. I missed the actual connection of the punch. I didn't even know what punch landed. I just knew Overeem was falling. So looking up at the screen, back down, up at the screen, then back down at the cage can get a little bit annoying sometimes, you know? Sometimes you can't see what you want to see live, so you look at the screen. Especially when it goes on the ground, you almost always look at the screen because you can't really see from far. Don't try to argue with people because at that event, there was like three fights in the crowd. Happened at different times and some of them were actually front row. I mean, give someone else those tickets if you're not going to use them. And those fights happened like before even the co-main event happened. So they were escorted out before the co-main event and the main event. They spent all that money for no reason. And best seats, it depends on the person. I think like the mid-level is the best where you can see over the cage and everything like that. Up front and center, it's kind of hard to see everything. The cage does get in the way. It's a little bit too uh, distracting. So somewhere mid-level, I think, is the best. And where to buy tickets? I forgot why I bought mine. And the headset? I didn't use the headset. Um, you don't need to. I think it could actually improve the experience, though. But it will get really loud in there, you know? The biggest pop of the night when I was there for UFC 218 was Justin Gaethje. When Justin Gaethje came out there... I mean, the crowd was wild. I don't know why. I don't know everyone loved Justin Gaethje for some reason, but yeah, it got loud in there when that guy came out. Louder than anybody else. Holloway, Aldo, even uh, Dracar Close, who's from Michigan. Nobody had the same kind of pop that Justin Gaethje had. Not even Eddie Alvarez did. I don't know why that was, but it was electrifying. It was actually really fun. Yeah, so keep me posted, man. And then we go to at Matt underscore Hassler underscore 84. Well, technically, he's right. Okay, so he's responding to my tweet, and I will uh, quote my tweet here. This notion that Max Holloway is the 145-pound GOAT is a bit disrespectful to Jose Aldo and what he's done. For some reason, fans and personalities in the sport have had this short memory throughout Aldo's entire career. And now Matthew here replies, well, technically, he's right in terms of uh, the personalities, mostly Joe Rogan, talking about Max Holloway as the greatest of all time. Well, technically, he's right. This is the next gen of fighters, and next generation only get better. You've mentioned something along those lines before. I know age Aldo doesn't beat a young Max, but both prime Aldo and prime Max, that's a little closer, but Max still wins, right? I agree. Okay, that's a little bit different. Um, When we're talking about greatest of all time, we have to compare them to their generation and their era because it wouldn't be fair, right? Matt Hughes would be looked at as some scrub that would even rank ever in terms of today. So you have to compare them to the competition they were fighting at. That is why GSP, in my opinion, is the greatest of all time because he went through three generation of fighters and beat them all, right? He's beaten people before his generation, during his generation, in the same era, and the era after his generation. That's why I think GSP is the greatest. Josie Aldo was able to kind of do the same thing. You know, Chad Mendes was the young fighter back then. And Chad Mendes was in his prime when they rematched. Whereas Josie Aldo was getting up there in age. You know, maybe he wasn't old. He was like 28 or so. But he's been fighting for a very long time. And that's a different kind of thing. Like Gegard Mousasi was only like 34 years old. But his progression has stopped years ago. I mean, he hasn't been getting better for years now. And he's still not considered old for the division. But he has over 50 fights. He's been fighting forever, man. And in terms of Jose Aldo, Aldo's been fighting since Uriah Faber has been fighting, you know. Uriah Faber made his debut in 2003, Aldo made it in 2004. So you can kind of consider them almost the same era of fighters. You know, Uriah Faber, Cub Swanson, you know, these guys are pretty much in the same era as Jose Aldo. Chad Mendes started his career, I think, in 2008. 
which you can consider maybe a generation after or maybe late in all those generation. But that's the thing. Is Chen Menace also in the same generation as Uriah Faber? I don't think so, right? And then Max Holloway started in 2010, which is way later than Aldo, which is clearly an era or two eras after Jose Aldo. And Jose Aldo is still competitive with the best fighters today, a generation later, or you can consider two generations later. So fight years is actually a lot more important than actual age. And depends actually if you get over like 40 or something, and then you start fighting, you're obviously not going to be as good as if you started when you were in your 20s. But fighting age is a huge factor that people really aren't taking notice. Right, that's why Yoel Romero is competing so well now because he started fighting in his 30s. Most of these guys are fighting when they're like 20, 19. That's the same thing with Jose Aldo. And that's why they retire a lot younger. Romero's probably not going to retire for another few years. That's why uh, Randy Couture, who started fighting when he was like 36, that's why he kept going until he was like 48 years old. Even when he fought Lyoto Machida, people forgot. They only remember the knockout. Randy Couture actually was doing very well against a young Lyoto Machida. Fighting age is different. It's more important in my opinion. Next gen fighters, just saying that because they're better, they're more technical, they're advanced, that's why they are greater. That throws out guys like Anders Silva, you know, older fighters, uh, even some guys like Josie Aldo and stuff like that. So that's why you can't just go and say the next generation fighters are greater. For an example, is Volkanovski greater than Josie Aldo? Is he a better 145 pound fighter is he higher on the goat list because he is advanced you wouldn't think so so the argument kind of falls on itself now this changes when they're competing up against each other you can't look at greatest of all time or who's better by just who beat who i made a video about this so quentin jackson leon machina and rashad evans all beat one or another who's the best out of them you can't say because if you point to one, one already lost to another. So you deal with Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate, and Holly Holm, right? You can't point to one with that argument. The only thing you have to go to is who had a greater career legacy. So then you're going to go to potentially Rampage Jackson or something like that. And in uh, the woman's case, you have to go to Ronda Rousey. That's what you look at, right? Jolzy Aldo has a better career. He had a better legacy, more title defenses. Being a champion, fighting and defeating fighters as a champion is harder to do than when you're not a champion, no matter who it is. I know Max Holloway beat great fighters up to him becoming a champion, but they still don't hold the same kind of merit of constantly fighting five-round fights and being the target of your entire division for 10 years. You know, it's different. It's a different kind of pressure. It's a different kind of difficulty for Jose Aldo, which makes him greater. And I believe Jose Aldo beat better competition, stuff like that. The most title defenses in the division's history. Nine title defenses if you go by WEC, which is actually the third most ever in MMA. You know, best anti-wrestler to ever compete in the sport. One of the best leg kickers, one of the best boxers. I mean, there's so much that goes to Jose Aldo's credit. And even still today where he's older, he's not in his prime anymore, in my opinion, he still beats some of the top contenders, you know? So that only goes to his credit. Aldo is amazing. He's one of the greatest of all time, period. Not just 145 pounder. All around, in general, one of the greatest ever. Then we go to at Ali Akbar underscore H-Shah. Chill has been saying that for fighter safety, 25-minute fights should be abolished. I personally think five three-minute rounds for all fights is good. But I've heard people say that three minutes is not enough time for grapplers to work position. Your thoughts? I agree with that. I agree that three minutes is not enough time. But it's different because there's striking involved and people are not going to allow you to wrestle. You know, they're going to stop your takedowns, be at a distance, stuff like that, which makes the grappling take a lot longer to occur. I like five-minute, five-round fights. I'm not going to lie. I like that. Uh, if you limit down to three minutes, you limit the potential action that could have taken place for those extra two minutes. You know what I'm saying? You could probably make the argument that why don't we make them seven rounds? I agree. You can make them seven rounds. 
To be honest, personally, what I want to see is no rounds. That's what I like. I like no rounds. Make it just 25 minutes. Because how many fights would have been different if there were any rounds? Potentially fighters getting saved by the bell. Potentially fighters starting to gas out and then getting second wins because of their rest and the break. But then corner advice won't really be a thing. I do like corner advice though, so I'm kind of uh, conflicted here. I like when fighters go to the corner and actually hear the changes they make. So that's actually cool. That's one thing I like about rounds. But in terms of fighting, in terms of just straight competing without any of the outside help, 25-minute fights are great in my opinion. Yeah, I don't know where 25 minutes should be abolished. I don't know why Chael would think it's against fighter safety. I don't think it's that long. It's only 25 minutes. Imagine boxing. It's 36 minutes. If you make it five three-minute rounds, it's a 15-minute fight. A lot of rounds, a lot of rest, a lot of recovering, a lot of second wins occurring in, fight, in different kind of fights. But I wouldn't be opposed to five three-minute rounds, but I feel like it would be too quick. You know what I'm saying? I like long fights sometimes. Like uh, Robert Whitaker and Raul Romero, five minutes, five-round fight was amazing. You know, so many fights. Connor and Nate Diaz, if that was only three minutes, I don't think we would enjoy it as much. So... That's the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you did, make sure you give it a like. Make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you haven't done so yet. I'm working on a few videos. And maybe later in the week, potentially starting next week, my second Street Fight Breakdown video is going to come out. So be look out for that. It's not going to be as long. You know, I understand an hour long on Street Fight could be a little bit too much. So I have to limit myself. I have to cut it short a lot of times because... If you guys don't know, if you guys see how I break down fights, I can break down a fight, a fight for hours, you know? So actually what you see in my breakdowns isn't everything I think about it. You know, I can make those so much longer with a lot more information, but limiting it is going to help the viewer's enjoyment, you know what I'm saying? So for an example, like I made the Ronda Rousey knockout. The breakdown was like 20 something minutes when the fight was only like 48 seconds. I've gotten a lot better at breaking down fights since then. So potentially it would be way longer if I wanted it. So Street Fight Breakdown should be a lot shorter. It should be probably double the length of the actual like compilation that I'm going to break down. So be look out for that. It should be fun. Now people that don't understand it or don't know about it. It could be humorous. You know I do find Street Fights humorous to watch. I think they are pretty ridiculous a lot of times. And there's a lot a lot of mistakes. When I break these down, it's an educational thing where I'm showing showing the mistakes made, what should be added to fix those, and how dumb the situations are a lot of times. So it's fun, it's humorous, it's educational, it's everything. So be look out for that, and thank you guys so much for watching, thank you guys so much for listening. I'm going to keep you guys updated on my next podcast. I usually don't promote my Twitter account, um, but I'm going to keep you guys updated on my next podcast because I might make some few changes so if you guys haven't followed me on Twitter, that would be awesome. My Twitter handle is under every single video, every description box. So I'll keep you guys updated, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.